Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And we are delighted today to have with us Michael Lind. Michael is uh, author of 16 books between his fiction and nonfiction work, the most recent of which is The New Class War, which talks about the role of the managerial elite in American society. Michael, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I mean, what an interesting time to be uh, to be talking with you again. By the way, I know you were a, a guest on this podcast uh, previously, but uh, with the state of the country right now in such flux and people exhibiting such angst about the future of America, the future of American leadership, are you getting the same sense that we are that that there is some fundamental reshuffling that's going on of American leadership? Well, in my uh, previous books, The Next American Nation, and in some of my other work, including my economic U.S. land of promise, I argued that even though formally we are still living under the Constitution of 1787, in practice, the United States breaks down and is reorganized every uh, couple of decades or generations. And, and my argument over the last couple of decades has been that there's an external cause for this. Uh, and, and you find the same thing happening in other societies, uh, in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. Uh, and that is successive techno-economic paradigms, uh, to use the phrase of uh, followers of uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who study technological innovation, that is, you have these uh, general purpose technologies like the steam engine and then later the electric motor and the internal combustion engine, more recently uh, computers. Uh, and these uh, transform the entire economy. Uh, so what happens is over a generation or so, there's a growing gap between the emerging economic structures, which are new and based on these innovative technologies, they, they may be bad. For example, cotton agriculture based on slavery expanded in the South in the early 1800s because of the steam engine and British manufacturing. So, so technology-driven uh, economic change is not necessarily bad, but there's a growing gap between the inherited political system and the new emerging economy and social order. And at some point, that tends to be violently closed. Uh, and it is closed by scrapping much of the older political and legal system, and, uh, creating a new, I call them republics. Uh, so we had a first republic, which was an agrarian society, it collapsed in the Civil War. Uh, Lincoln and the Northern Republicans and Unionist Democrats, they didn't really revive the the old republic, they kind of built a new one, the second republic of the United States. And uh, it became increasingly anachronistic in the early 1900s because of the rise of big business. Uh, and so I argue the third republic of the United States emerged in the depression in World War II uh, under Franklin Roosevelt and New Deal Democrats. And it was ratified so-called modern republicans like Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon so we're still, I think we're in the, the in dying phase of the Third Republic, of the new... But, you know, it strikes me that this notion of yours, 
that um, technological change um, is the catalyst for creating these, <laughs> these new organizing principles for society. With the with the increasing speed of change, are we likely to see the the new republics that get uh, they get created through the through the combined efforts of government policy and industrial you know industrial efforts by the private sector? Are we likely to see this speed of change? Be making ourselves more disruptive over time, and and kind of the equilibrium that comes out of it, or the economic success that come out of it, just less long lasting. That's possible. Although on the technological side, I don't think technological progress is accelerating. If anything, it's been somewhat stagnant. Uh, the economist Robert Gordon argued that the eighteen uh, sixties were the most dynamic period of technological innovation. There's nothing like it before since you get automobile engine, you know, advanced electricity, all kinds of things. Uh, it, you know, when it comes to, to energy sources, nuclear energy goes back to the 1940s. Solar power goes back to the 1940s too. Uh, these are old you know, windmills, you know, renewable energy. These are old, old, old technologies. Uh, uh, the computer revolution has moved more slowly than people thought. And AI, you know, it's now 2022, like, where's my self-driving vehicle, right? Where's my robot made? Uh, so I think, I think we're... we're you're, your self-driving vehicle is just actually about to hit your bicycle. I don't <laughs> but but so, so, Mike, what, what is the fourth republic that's... Uh, is something emerging? Can you, can you draw out for the... Listeners. Yeah, well, there's there's the Fourth Republic I would like, where, let me back up a little bit, the uh, first two republics in the United States were not really very egalitarian and, and democratic, you know, like we say, we were the great democracy in the world, so on. we were more democratic than Latin America and Europe, but, but uh, you know, the, the, if you look at the, the, you know, from Washington to Lincoln, country was governed by local gentry local oligarchies, mostly agricultural and mercantile, because big business didn't exist yet. Uh, the Second Republic really has two phases, one from the Civil War up until the 1880s, when really the only big business in the United States was the railroads. The true age of big business comes in the great merger wave of the 1880s and 1890s. That's when you get uh, Standard Oil, you know, you get General Electric, you get Carnegie Steel, you get these giant firms. Not immediately after the Civil War. Uh, and if you one way to think about the New Deal is it solved a lot of the problems of the second half of the Second Republic, where you had these giant factories and mass factory employment and what that meant for lifestyle and wages. Uh, and the Lincoln Constitution of Reconstruction just could not deal with that. So we, we had a new informal constitution under Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower. Uh, I, I think the emerging Fourth Republic, and it, it's, I'm very pessimistic, looks to me like more like the Second Republic, particularly in the early years when it was dominated by the railroad barons. And again, we're not taught this correctly by historians, uh, as I said, from the, really from the 1830s up until the 1880s, the railroads were just immense and everything else, even the biggest 
manufacturing companies were small by comparison. Uh, you had this period of a generation or two where every politician practically in the United States worked for a railroad directly or indirectly. Lincoln was a prosperous railroad lawyer. His opponents were railroad lawyers, right? You know, the bankers worked for the railroads. Uh, so it really was very much a one industry country, particularly after the Southern planters crushed and subordinated. Uh, and it wasn't big business in general. So when you look at the phrase, the robber barons, uh, you know, uh, the robber barons term initially was used for infrastructure oligarchs. It, it, was, it was for, uh, uh, you know, Jay Gould and, uh, uh, you know, Vanderbilt and the people who controlled canals and railroads and toll roads and so on. It was not used for CEOs of large industrial corporations. But, but couldn't you really argue that um, today's robber barons are also infrastructure? That's that it, it, exactly, exactly. Because what has happened is, let's let's have two categories: captains of industry and robber barons, whom I've sometimes co uh, called toll booth tycoons. Hmm. So the captains of industry were were very powerful in the New Deal era, all the way up until Reagan or so. Uh, you know, the head of General Motors, right? You know, a third of the uh, uh, workforce worked from manufacturing. Well, most of those jobs have been outsourced to Mexico or China or Vietnam, or some of them have been automated. A lot of them are simply outsourced. So therefore, the social and political power of CEOs uh, of large manufacturing companies uh, is much smaller now. Con contrast Jeff Immelt, uh, until recently CEO of General Electric, with, say, Charlie Wilson of General Motors in the middle of the 20th century. So by default, Fault, the most powerful uh, capitalist elites in this quasi-deindustrialized America are the ones who own infrastructure that cannot be outsourced. And that infrastructure can be physical. In the case of Amazon, which is based on you know, like its own fleet of trucks and warehouses, so Jeff Bezos is really more like a railroad. Well, and, there, and the digital side of Amazon as well, in terms of the server farms and things like that, that are basically the infrastructure that runs digital. Well, they, they, they dominate the cloud. Right. Yeah. So, so and you have an intangible virtual uh, of railroads uh, in, in the form of Google and Facebook and Twitter and so on. And these are not media companies like in, in the traditional sense, they really are more like railroads or canals. They're essential to business. And you have choke points. And just one more point, the original robber barons were medieval German aristocrats and they had castles on the Rhine uh, and they would uh, force all passing ships at these choke points to pay tolls you know, to them. So if you think about how do our how do these great billionaires, uh, Bezos and the Google Boys and the rest, uh, Zuckerberg, Gates, uh, they're essentially extracting tolls from businesses and citizens because they control these infrastructure choke points. They are not CEOs of manufacturing companies that are making flying cars or robot names. But now the the thing that started us started us off though was this idea that 
the country doesn't seem to be coalescing around leaders. What you're saying is that ultimately these new generations of robber barons are will probably emerge to create more power and control over society more overtly through the political system. I would think that would be your your thesis. Oh, right? yeah. I, it hasn't I think, happened yet. Well, I, I agree with Joel in a lot of his writings. I think we are headed to, towards more oligarchy before we see less. Yeah. Uh, you, you see this increasing fusion. And, and this was true. It's nothing new. I mean, if you go back to the railroad era, uh, basically, it didn't really matter, you know, whether the Republicans or Democrats one in a Midwestern state because they're both on the payroll of the local railroad, right? You know, or some national railroad system. Uh, so I, th- I think, and it could get worse with a private sector social credit system uh, where if, if you say something that runs afoul of, and this is not the government, this is, you know, the, 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 the toll booth companies, then suddenly your, your ATM card doesn't work and, you get your electricity cut off and your your electric car won't start. I mean, that's a bit dystopian, but I think we're headed that way. Well, yeah. is, cancel, is cancel culture kind of a a, a, a permutation of that? Well, I wrote about this for Tablet. I, I said, you know, most of the focus comes on people like us being canceled. We can't publish where we used to and things like that. And, and well, that's a tragedy, but, you know, world's smallest violin. The real problem with Cancel culture is when you're canceled by your bank hmm. or you're canceled. You know, you can't get auto insurance because you or we, I mean, I, I'm still freaked out. It's been almost 20 years, like, really, that we have a no fly list in the United States. It's like pre-crime in, in Philip K. Dick's uh, dystopian novel, Minority Reports. So you, you can go. No, it's none of the three of us, I should hope. But you go to get on your air flight, and then they tell you, well, you're on an FBI no-fly list, so you can't get on the airplane. And then you ask, well, you didn't know this. The FBI doesn't contact people and say you're on a no-fly list, right? Well, why am I on a no-fly list? Well, we can't say. It's a secret, right? I mean, that's totalitarian. It is. Where where is Franz Kafka when we need him? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so so I hear you saying that you're you're pessimistic, and am I? What do you think is the near term pessimistic play out of all of this? Well, I think we're we're basically it's going to be Groundhog Day, <laughs> where it's it's a Clinton type politicians versus Trump type politicians for years or decades to come. That is, that is, you'll have the uniparty, you'll have the, the elite Republicans and Democrats who are pretty much on the payroll of the same uh, robber barons in, in Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Uh, and they're kind of interchangeable. In 2015, before Trump entered the race, everyone assumed that the presidential candidates in 2016 would be the son and brother of two recent U.S. presidents and the wife of a recent U.S. president. I mean, that really is banana republic, right? When you get two families and they're trading. Like the dynastic aspect. That's, that's... Yeah, and I thought, why not just 
heavy Bush marry a Clinton and in the War of the Roses, right? <laughs> and a united reign, like Game of Thrones, right? Uh, so, but that naturally, you know, I'm not the only person who noticed this. Millions and millions of voters did. We want more choice. And you got uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and this is a pattern, as I've, I've written about in the new class war. Uh, it's common in societies where you lack intermediate uh, institutions like unions and sometimes churches and, and religious institutions uh, that and, and local uh, political machines that empower ordinary people. So you have this very, you have like the 30 families that run your little banana republic, a bunch of alienated, anomic, isolated, you know, working class people otherwise. And that, that is a formula for demagogy because uh, someone will see that there's all of this hatred of the 30 families, the establishment. Can I add? And uh, come uh, along and uh, say, uh, I shall save you. You know, I am a veto. But you know what? 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 What also strikes me is the degree of disengagement in the public. Um, you know, in our we just had an election in California with what fourteen percent turnout. Right. I mean the it, the it's rational, Joe. It's rational uh, because there were two ways you can engage in politics in a democracy. One is voting. The other is taking part. In a in a one of the parties actually participating in your local party sector, the two parties have disintegrated in the United States. They're just labels. Hmm. People like uh, Trump and and uh, Bloomberg, who both you know they went back and forth as Democrats and Republicans, Trump and Bloomberg. It's just a label you buy it. Right? It's a brand. Uh, in the brand, there's certain people whose lifestyles are associated with the brand. So does the decline of the parties and, and the disengagement of the public work in the favor of these toll booth companies? Well, it works in favor of them choosing the political leaders, certainly, because the way you go to get office, uh, as a retired senator told me, he quit because he said he was disgusted. Uh, this was in the 2000s. The, he was a Democrat. The DNC hands you a list. And then you go to, and he was from Midwestern state. You go to San Francisco, Chicago, uh, L.A., and, and uh, uh, New York, and all of the senators go, and then they have a meeting with one of the big Democratic donors, and, and the Democratic donors just rant about their personal issues they favor. They don't care about your state, right? And then you just sort of smile and then maybe tug your forelock and get a check, right? So we have a rotten borough system in which the the people from the local state or congressional district are really representing rich people in corporations somewhere across the country for the most part. Uh, so now that is that has changed up until the 70s. Uh, from the 1830s, when Martin Buren sort of formalized it, he didn't invent it, but he created the party convention system, all the way up until the McGovern Fraser reforms in the 1970s. The, the parties were hierarchical federations of state and local chapters. Uh, and this empowered the people at the state and local level because the, the state politicians chose the national politicians, right? And the county politicians chose the state politicians. So it, it really, you know, so power went up 
information went up as well, right? So now if you're, and I know and work with uh, uh, members of Congress in both parties, and these are very able people. They're quite, you know, public spirited. Uh, but in the absence of these party machines and courthouse gangs, the only way they can find out about what the people in their district or state are thinking is through polls, right? Which is very misleading. You know, like LBJ would have called up Mayor Daly in Chicago. What's the mood on the street? <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, and they had, <clears throat> had a machine of aldermen who were out in every yeah. ward and they, you know, they knew. I mean, but one of the things we've noticed, I, I noticed here in California, too, is politicians running, let's say, for the L.A. City Council don't even really represent districts anymore. They represent yeah. the public employee unions, the progressive in, in our case, progressive nonprofits. You know, I always wonder, like, like my the woman who represented my mother-in-law's old district in uh, in the um, Northeast Valley, which is really you know, almost the outskirts of L.A., voting for hundreds of millions of dollars for downtown L.A. I said, why would and what I what I realized is that she was no longer representing that valley district. She was representing a a sort of system and a and a confluence of interests that are more important. And of course, if you have a one party system, that's even easier. Um, well, and I wonder, I wonder at the same time whether or not in in the in the absence of this bottoms up. Um, uh, drumbeat system that basically keeps government focused on what people want and and the and the fact that we've got a uh, a system that's dominated by the new infrastructure robber barons the digital infrastructure robber barons i wonder what the role of government really is it's is it is it just to kind of maintain the the status quo you know uh, execution of budgets and kind of keep the focus off of the robber barons, or is there um, is there a tighter connection between the agenda that the robber barons might have and the population as a whole? Well, having I, I know some of these new what I'm calling toll booth tycoons, and and again, you know, these are generally decent, nice. Well, it's just you know, I mean, the railroad, you know, CEOs and owners were. You know, a lot of them are perfectly nice people. A hundred years, it's a, it's a system I'm criticizing. It's not that these are wicked individuals. Uh, but but the, the thing is, you know, they're open to all kinds of reforms as long as they don't threaten their wealth and power. Right. Okay. So so Jeff Bezos and the Google people and so on, you know, they're all, they're all you know, transgender rights or, you know, gay marriage or, you know, uh, helping people with malaria in Africa, you know, nice, very generous, you know, open. Uh, unions, in, you know, for our workers, no. Uh, reversing the uh, outsourcing, the domestic outsourcing from their companies, where you get this pattern where people at, at firms like Google, I understand, they're wearing little badges because they got rid of their full-time employees and replaced them with more poorly paid contractors. But no, we're just not going to go there. Right. So so when you have a rent extracting oligarchy, which has been the norm in civilized history, uh, then they're open to various things as long as it doesn't affect their extraction of rents. And and the extraction of rents comes from two different groups, which overlap. 
consumers through higher prices and workers through lower wages. Uh, and uh, so how do you, now the New Deal, which I think is the only democratic republic we've had in small d in American history, because the Lincoln Republic and the Washington Republic were not very democratic, but the Roosevelt Republic was. Uh, and they dealt with <coughs> because uh, they had utility price regulation of uh, electricity, water, we could have had, you know, they had the big power uh, guys in the 1920s. There could have been the Jeff Bezos of electricity in the 1940s and 50s, right? Or the, you know, the, the, the Zuckerberg of uh, water. And that was, that was an option, right? So, so basically they drained the rents from the infrastructure sector by making them uh, very low profit utilities. Mm-hmm. Either they were privately owned but price regulated, or like Austin, it's just it was municipal electrical companies. Right. Uh, the other thing they did, so that's on the consumer side, and it was good for the industrial productive businesses because they didn't want to get gouged by the infrastructure and transportation. Right. Their, their, their goal was let's set the lowest cost of input we possibly can. Yeah. So, so there's, I would argue there's an alliance between productive industry workers and consumers to keep, and this goes back to David Ricardo. So in the 19th century, uh, Ricardo said there, there's landlords, the capitalists, and the workers. And he was very pessimistic. He thought the landlords would eventually destroy capitalism because the capitalists would do these innovative things. They would, would raise uh, uh, their profits. The landlord knows exactly how much the, the businessman is making, right? And is going to charge, exa- raise the rents. Right. Proportionally on a, on a percentage basis. Based yeah. On and, profit. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So, 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 and then the, the real estate owners end up, and then the capitalists can't share their, profits with the workers because they don't have any profits. They've been eaten up. Well, that brings up a very interesting possible scenario of utilitizing, if that's a word, um, the digital infrastructure, you know, turning turning the internet into a digital utility, turning server farms into, uh, into do you think that's likely? Well, as time goes on, all kinds of things will be thinkable that are not thinkable right now. Uh, but, but I think we, we, that's where we need to move, whether we will or not. Uh, I'm for municipal broadband. I mean, why would that be privately owned any more than water or electricity? I'm for imposing, you know, centuries old Anglo-American common carrier rules. On all well, the argument, the argument for why you wouldn't want to do that is that <clears throat> the technology underlying it is changing too rapidly and you don't want to put a disincentive for investment in the next generation if there's no profit in it. I know it's, it's a false argument. Uh, and the reason is, uh, as time goes on, comp- price competition has less and less to do with innovation yeah. compared to product innovation. This was the point that Joseph Schumpeter made in the 1940s. He said, so what he, when he talks about creative destruction, he's distinguishing this from competing on the basis of price. So creative destruction is not 
uh, uh, Apple coming along with a slightly improved typewriter that is cheaper than Smith Corona's. It's you, you replace the typewriter with a PC, right? Okay, so where did the PC come from? Uh, well, Steve Jobs was a genius as an entrepreneur, you know, commercializing this. All of, all of the research and development of the technology that went into the PC was done by two entities with enormous deep pockets for R&D. One was the federal government, particularly the Defense Department, and the other was IBM, a virtual monopoly. According to conventional economic theory, IBM should not have invented anything, right? But it was precisely the fact that IBM had more or less a guaranteed market hmm. that, that they knew the moment they came up with an innovative product, they, they could recoup 20 years of development like in six weeks. Well, Xerox was also a player in it. Xerox, AT&T, yeah. right, labs. So, so you know, and, and Schumpeter figured this out, although it's been forgotten, you know, now uh, with all of this neoliberal libertarian propaganda, you would we would not have a jet engines if we had had 100 tiny mom and pop companies competing. Well, because, you know, Mike, in today's environment, you know, it's the problem is you get the worst of both worlds. You get monopolies, oligopolies, but no innovation or I mean, like I, I always ask people, is is Microsoft better now than 10 years ago? Well, Google is worse. In my Google is, has, has deteriorated enormously um yeah they should bring back dog pot <laughs> <laughs> or ink to me right i mean they're, they're, no but but but, I, but I, you're just you, you have to distinguish again the the infrastructure industries from right. product industries manufacturing okay so with the infrastructure industries i think the deal there is uh sort of like we had with pnt with Ma Bell, which i think should still exist i think our phone service would be better now if Ma Bell had, had existed because you wouldn't have all of these. The competition phone companies is over like advertising and branding and, and like little benefits and tricking, you know, you into doing this plan or that plan. It's not the actual, you know, elements of the physical phone. Okay. If we had one national price regulated telephone monopoly, uh, then like AT&T, they, they could have uh, uh, giant Bell Labs. The Bell Labs could still exist because they would have guaranteed uh, uptake. once they. So, okay, we, we have this toll booth capitalism and we've talked about that. What is the role of the managerial elite, particularly in, in, in the government and the quasi-government world, the role they play. I mean, I find here in California and Marshall, I think, and I have both experienced this. The nonprofits are essentially a quasi government. They all have a particular ideology. What is happening? How much power is now in the hands of, of the of the managerial elites? I know here in California, you know, we get most of the edicts have no, would many of them would never pass the legislature because the voters would object to it. So it, it gets from top down. Is, is this the future? Is this what we're going to see more and more of? Um, well, I, well, here, yeah, I, I think so, because if now you have managers, we've all, all companies, you know, we've had big managerial companies for 100 years. Uh, uh, 
at the same time, you've had managerial nonprofits, managerial government agencies, managerial. Uh, so I, I, the, the, the toll booth sector, I, I would treat that differently, as I said, for manufacturing. The manufacturers at the end of the day, uh, you either succeed or you fail. There is a real world test of the CEO and the company, right? Either the product selling or it's not. And it's a very short-term metric. Yeah, very short-term, but, but, but it's a real-world metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with the politicians, the elected politicians. Uh, you know, you, you either succeed or you fail. So within the government, uh, arguably, and remember that our government is technically about 2 million people, if you include the armed forces and civil servants, Include contractors and so on, probably like five or six million. You're basically government employees, federally supported state and local officials. Uh, you have, you know, a couple hundred members of Congress and a few political appointees in the executive branch. It's a full time job to even find out what the permanent government is doing, right? And many of their proposals just come from the permanent government, and then it's they rubber stamp it as laws. So I think what we see is what you would expect. It's kind of like the Soviet Union. Uh, In the sectors that are most protected from voters or from market competition, we see massive incompetence and nepotism and stupidity and failure that goes on and on and on because it's never punished. And I mean, it's just across the board, you know, whether it was the way COVID was handled, you know, losing these wars. Uh, in Afghanistan and maybe now in Ukraine and so on, uh, the judiciary is a terrible problem, left, right, or center, because uh, you're like life tenured, right? You're like, the universities, uh, you know, I, I don't want to criticize universities too much because I recently uh, taught in one, but having a tenured professoriate is a real problem when it comes from to disciplining incompetence. Yeah. So if the only if the only remedy to any to, to any incompetence is um, losing your job, very unlikely that that's going to be making an impact in the managerial elite in, yeah, the, in, was, the, in, the, in the public sector. Right. I was always a defender of <clears throat> civil service. My, my uh, well, my father was a political appointee in the Texas Attorney General's office. My mother was a career school teacher. Uh, but I'm really coming around to the idea that government worked best when you had political patronage employees. Because if you did not succeed, if your department did not succeed, the person who appointed you would be fired by the voters in the next election. And out you would go, right? If, if the water didn't work, right, then boom, you know, they vote against your boss and you're gone. Yeah, that, well, that's, I mean, one of the things that, that's such a problem now is, you know, let's say in a one party state like California, is people can be amazingly incompetent. You can you can push policies that when you poll them, people are against them, but you can't stop it. I mean, my, my sense is we're a society where between the toll booth companies and the sort of managerial, you know, clarity, as I would call it, between those two forces, the, the the vast majority is increasingly powerless. I, I think that's right. And, uh, and to some degree, uh, 
all of this is being driven indirectly by the wealth of the toll booth. Right. So not by Jeff Moult. I mean, he's rich, but he's not. No, no, no. There's enormous amounts of money flowing into the nonprofit sector. Uh, and into the media, you know, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Yeah, there's, there's largesse to be distributed. Yeah. <clears throat> Without yeah, largesse, so, it's no power. Right. And but so here's the thing, because as I said, I don't want to demonize these, these billionaires. They're mostly nice, bright people. But essentially, you're the despot, right? Uh, but, you know, you're not an expert. You're Bill Gates or whatever. Like, you know, you you... You can kind of read about things and so on, but you're not spending all your time studying particular issues. So you kind of are dependent on the people you subsidize, right? On your employees, okay? But they're telling you what is in their interest. It's not necessarily what's in your interest. So I think this idea that these these huge managerial bureaucracies, this is my debate with Marxist critics of my book, New class for they said no all of these millions and millions of bureaucrats are the pawns of a couple of dozen of billionaires the capitalists right it's like you know I don't, George Soros has no idea what most of the bureaucrats in, in that he he gives donations to are actually doing right uh, so so it's the worst of all worlds if these donors were like the Medici you know, or Pope Julius or something in, in <laughs> Renaissance Italy, you had to do what they said, right? Michelangelo or you're fired and we'll get somebody else. Then they could restrain them. But essentially you have in the non-market managerial bureaucracy, like these huge self-perpetuating bureaucracies, which are not even restrained by their donors, right? The donors don't necessarily have any idea what they're doing. Well, you know, it's funny. This seems like a perfect wrapping point because the whole premise of our podcast is the feudal future. But what you've shown us is that we actually are in the midst of a feudal present. It's the feudal present. And, you know, if you look at pre-modern societies, what characterized them was the weakness of the central war, right? So, you know, the Romans would send proconsuls to Palestine and the guys would just do whatever they wanted and run amok. And periodically one was summoned back to Rome and executed. Uh, but but it, it's a real problem. So I, I do think, and this goes back to James Burnham and, and the idea of the managerial revolution in his book in the 1940s. We have a ruling class. It's a managerial bureaucracy. It's found in different sectors, but in the sectors that are insulated from markets and voters. It really is a self-perpetuating oligarchy and it can get dumber and dumber and more and more incompetent. And basically there's no penalty, there's no restraint until you get Juan Peron. Right. Or Getulio Vargas. Or I prefer using the Latin Americans to the Europeans. Well, and basically biting the hand that fed them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the populist demagogues are usually just amoral narcissists who want to enrich themselves and their families, and they're usually members of the ruling class too. So they, they rouse the rabble, but then they get in power and they create their own little clientelist network and enrich their, their you know, uh, uh, cronies. They, they can do some good things, you know. So Huey Long, in addition to founding the Long family dynasty, 
he did build roads that poor people needed and hospitals and schools. But I'm, I'm just afraid that's that's all I can see in, in our future for now. So it's a question of whether we have good dictators or bad dictators. Right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> right. Enlightened despotism or just plain despotism. Well, well, the, the ray of hope is. How do you like your despot? <laughs> well, no, but, but the way this you could not have. You could not have had the New Deal if there had not been a half century before then of growing popular grassroots activism of the Grange, the agrarian populists, the trade unions, the Salvation Army, and all of that. So, so you can't expect to go from 1880 and railroad-dominated America to 1933, Franklin Roosevelt New Deal, right? Roosevelt, had he been elected in 1880, wouldn't have had any achievements. Uh, to have a New Deal, you had to have labor unions, farm organizations, you know, churches, just like to have the Civil Rights Revolution. You didn't have Justice Department lawyers. You had uh, Southern Black preachers and Jewish and Christian congregations, right? So our focus for the next generation or two, I think, instead of expecting like the good dictator to come the next election and fix everything, we just have to very patiently figure out how to rebuild these grassroots membership organizations in different areas, in labor, in the cities, in neighborhoods, in, in uh, culture, and education, and religion. And there could be different organizations, not the same ones. I, mass membership. I think this is the, that's the perfect message to leave, I think, with people, which is, you know, I'm also, you know, thinking about how do we, you know, I don't want feudalism to be the end. I want it to be a transition to something better. And I think what what Mike's talking about is grassroots organizations. And, and, and the problem we have today in many cases is those grassroots organizations are astroturf groups that are funded by, you know, the ex-wife of XYZ. And, they, and to be to be real, Joel, they have to be funded by the members. Yes. I that I think that's all union dues. It has to be it has to be, you know, religious uh tithes. It cannot be the first thing your nonprofit does cannot be to fly to San Francisco or New York and submit a grant. If, right. if there are not hundreds or thousands of people willing to pay a little bit every month, right? It's not- well, and this, is, this is the essence of civic engagement and possibly, hopefully, fueled by civic pride of, you know, hey, guess what? We did this ourselves and it worked. Let's well, do it again. Look, the, the, the recall of the San Francisco school board members was definitely an example of that. Yeah. Um, so is there, you know, I think what we're really saying at the end is it's going to take the, all of us to stand up to these people and, and not to keep thinking that the that, you know, the good dictator is going to come. Right. And with that, I think it's a perfect time to say thank you to our guest, Michael Lind. Uh, we really appreciate you, you joining us and uh, pointing the way to what I think is a, a brighter future. So thank you very much. Thanks. Glad to be here again.